Welcome to PMB. My name is Miriam Landis. I've been on the faculty at PMB for over a decade now. Um, but I, just sitting in the room with this group of people, I have to tell you how meaningful this is to me on a personal level. I'm sure you don't all want to hear my entire personal story, but I will say that I grew up as the daughter of the only rabbi in the state of Utah for almost 20 years. <laughs> so you can already guess why this is meaningful for me. Um, my dad was Rabbi Fred Wenger, and I was a rabbi's kid. We also have another rabbi's kid on this panel, but um, that's a very formative position to be in, especially when you're the only Jewish kid at your school, and, and that was me. And one of the ways that I found my own identity there was through ballet. In fact, I scandalized the synagogue because I dropped out of religious school after my bat mitzvah because ballet rehearsals were on Saturday. And, um, but one of the ways that I really rebelled in that way is that my spiritual place was in the ballet studio. It was not at synagogue. Um, and in fact, at that point in my life, I did not want to be at synagogue. But when you're born into that, it is such a core part of your identity that there's no way around it. Um, when I was 16, I went to the School of American Ballet in New York, and I left home for two years, thinking, I'm going to New York, there's going to be Jews. And there were, but I was the only Jewish kid in the dorm because what I soon found, and I think maybe I was talking with our, my beloved colleague Marjorie, who was saying that she did find other Jews when she was in New York City Valley. But when I was there, I was the only Jewish kid in the dorm. And I just, at that point, I even thought that I might need to change my name if I was going to have a professional career in dance. Um, it just... At the time that I was there, it just was not there. I was the only one. And then, when I graduated, I joined the Miami City Ballet. And when I got to Miami, where you'd think there would be a lot of Jews, and there were in the audience, I was still the only Jewish dancer in the ballet company there. So for many, many years, I felt like these two worlds did not connect. Um, so to have this event today is especially meaningful for me now at this point in my life because my children, I have four children, they are all graduates of the early childhood school at the JCC on Mercer Island. They are all students um, at the religious school at Temple to Hirsch Sinai, because they're all gonna have their B'nai B'tzvahs. And they are also all Pacific Northwest Ballet School students. And my oldest two had the honor of performing in the Nutcracker this year. So, as you can guess, not only does this event have a lot of meaning for me, but it is really meaningful for my kids to see that these two really important parts of their identity and their spiritual being come together and connect in this way. And so when we started talking about this event, um, it kind of came about because when I saw Eva's piece, I thought, gosh, I've never seen my culture represented on stage in this way. I mean, there is, I have never seen a growing menorah in the Nutcracker. Um, there just is not a lot of representation um, in dance in this way. And so when Eve and I started talking about it, and she has this story to tell that is a very brave story to tell because it's hard, right? It's not a sleeping beauty or a, you know, something that's light. Um, all these connections started being made, and I just said, well, said this to Naomi and Kian, who have been just unbelievable leaders um, in helping to bring this community together. Um, what if we brought everyone together and talked about how 
we use dance and we use art to express some of the things that are not, um, it, we're not always able to put in words. So I've got a dream team for you here, and I will not talk anymore because I want you to know them and hear them talk to each other because we had one rehearsal on Zoom that was just really powerful and I just feel really special to be connected to this table and I want you to hear them talk because they have a lot of really wonderful things to say. Okay, so I'm going to very tackily read their bios aloud because I think you should know them and I don't want to mess them up. So first of all, we have Rabbi Samuel Klein, who you met briefly before. He's the Director of Jewish Engagement for the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle. He also has a very interesting background in the arts and worked as the Director of a Contemporary Art Gallery in London and a specialist at Sotheby's in Hebrew rare books and manuscripts. Rabbi Klein trained as a teaching artist at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts with a focus on modern dance and choreography, which I don't, again, Jewish and dance, I love it, okay. Then we have uh, Pamela Lavitt. She is the Director of Arts and Ideas and the Seattle Jewish Film Festival at the Strom Jewish Community Center. She brings together hundreds of international artists, authors, films, and filmmakers annually to the greater Seattle region. She has a background in acting and completed her PhD coursework in performance studies for the NYU Tisch School of the Arts, where she studied the history of Jewish women in theater, Jews in popular culture, and Yiddish language. Previously, she taught at UW Jewish and Women's Studies, NYU Drama, and served as an oral historian with the Jewish Women's Archive, which I would love to hear more about at some point. Um, then we have Beverly Silver from the Holocaust Center Speakers Bureau, who has spent her career as an art educator, working extensively in K-12 public and private schools, museum and university settings, and as a career counselor. Recently, she retired from Seattle University, where she directed the job placement office in the College of Education. She speaks regularly to share the story of both of her parents, Jewish Holocaust survivors Johanna Stern Moss and Malcolm Moss. And on my left is Dee Simon. She is the Baral family CEO at the Holocaust Center for Humanity and the child of a Holocaust survivor. She has worked with survivors and their families for over 26 years, building an education center that serves over 40,000 students annually. She is on the board of directors of the International Association of Holocaust Organizations and a frequent presenter at conferences, corporate diversity programs, and universities. I just incredible work. Um, then I have Rabbi Daniel Wiener. He is the senior rabbi at Temple to Hirsch Sinai. He's a community leader, and like me, he's a rabbi's kid, so that always has a soft spot in my heart. He believes passionately in building Judaism for the 21st century and in healing the world through social justice. And he also has a special talent connecting with the younger generation. And if you have not been to his rock Shabbat, it's pretty cool. And then, of course, you met Eva Stone. Um, who is a bit of a personal hero. Um, she's just a tremendous choreographer, and not only a choreographer, but a female choreographer, which you don't find so often, and is really leading the way in so many ways. Um, she's a world-renowned choreographer, and she also teaches at the Pacific Northwest Ballet School, like me. She is the founder-producer of Chop Shop Bodies of Work, and she launched our nationally recognized choreography program, New Voices, Choreography and Process for Young Women in Dance at PNB. Um, the first program of its kind. Okay, so that was long, and now we get to chat. We get to kibitz. So I'm going to start with Eva. And Eva, I would love if you could tell us what you hope that this crowd maybe takes away from your piece today. I mean, um, you know, dance is like any other art form, just like we discussed before, storytelling. Um, we all have our own 
human life is deeply fascinating. Um, as I said, when I normally present this work, it doesn't really come with any liner notes or explanations. It's dedicated to Jacqueline, uh, and it's in memory of her life. Um, but I usually like the audience to normally have their own experience about it. Um, it was special for me today to be able to kind of tell you the, the imagery and the ideas that behind the work. Um, but we just need to keep these, even though these topics are difficult to talk about, uh, we need to keep them current and relative in our everyday conversation. Um, what strikes me about an event of this horrific nature, it wasn't even 100 years ago. I have family members who are still alive, who survived, who I just spoke to on the phone yesterday. Um, it is very much uh, present and, and alive in our world, and we have a lot going on in our world, but we need to keep these conversations at the forefront, so that's what's the purpose of keeping these conversations and stories alive and relevant. Great, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna go over to Rabbi Klein now, and I wanna ask you to talk a little bit about how can we express the unexpressible, the unspeakable. When trauma is too painful to talk about, how can we express it through dance? How does that make it more accessible? Um, how can we use art to spread a message? Thank you, Erin. Um, I just had a conversation just before we come, after our two solos performed, um, feeling that that was a moment that could speak also to this question. You know, the idea that after a traumatic moment there is um, a well, a deep well of pain is inexpressible uh, that one cannot articulate as well, as well documented and the inexpressible how do you bring it forward and here in Seattle years ago there was a scholar called Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi who gave a series of talks at the Strong Center Jewish Studies which became his book Zachor Remembrance, this was a word that triggered this train of thought, the idea of remembrance or memory he claimed that memory is de facto, treacherous, dangerous, harming onto facts, this happened in this way, in that way, and the other way is challenge. And yet there is this deep desire to remember, to recall exactly that. And into that breach steps the aesthetic, the imagination, which is to say forms like art or dance that call for an interpretive mode immediately that um, there was that moment of Kyle saying to us, we're not going to tell you the story, we're not going to show you what it's about or its origin point, just watch. And then let's notice deeply at the second time. Slowing, slowing, slowly urge down to interpretation as a potential response to trauma. To listen first, to look first, to try to inhabit bodily what that trauma is for another, and then to interpret. Um, or to join in the interpretation. So one can never stand in the shoes of, I think, ever you, you've mentioned that, the idea that you could even possibly step, you mentioned that phrase, step in the shoes, and yet, as an audience member, I was drawn in, utterly drawn in. Now, I've only seen it on, on YouTube, I've actually seen it in person. I was drawn in by several modes. One mode was the pivot between joy and sorrow. Seems that even in the moments of deep joy, the scenes, the interstitial moments are woven through the awe of sorrow. Um, and that sorrow and joy are kind of like um, inhabiting the same thread. And you did that in such a way with your the modes that you used to express through your dances. So for me, 
dance especially, movement especially, can communicate the inflection points, the adjustments that each dancer makes. What an audience member on this side of the room was drawn in by may have not been noticed by a member of the audience on the other side of the room. Each of us maybe followed a dancer in their direction. Maybe for us listening to trauma, there are certain words, certain themes that call for us. So I would say in response to, to how trauma being too painful to discuss, maybe we shouldn't be discussing it. Maybe we should be witnessing it. And by witnessing it, we can maybe empathize with it. That's wonderful. Um, thank you, Rabbi Klein. It's a lot. Um, how do we represent something as horrific as the Holocaust in art? Um, that's something that we have discussed quite a bit. Um, and I'm, I'm actually going to start with Pamela because Pamela in particular is a curator of ways to bring this forward in a way that people will come and will take it in in a way that, you know, this is a subject that it, it's not always easy to bring people into. So. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to put a little bit of my scholar of popular culture hat on and then also as a presenter of culture. Um, but I, maybe it's, it's good to provide just a little bit of historical context, if that's okay. Um, I mean, a lot of people attribute something to Adorno, which even I got wrong in a conversation. He didn't say that there's no art after Auschwitz. He actually said that writing poetry after Auschwitz would be barbaric. And this notion of after the Holocaust, whether or not there is representation of the tragedy, whether or not we can create or use aesthetics and art to represent it, was, is, has its own historical value to just explore momentarily. Um, you know, one of the things that many of us may remember is that, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, Holocaust, there wasn't even the word Holocaust, actually, that came in the 60s. Um, the word survivor also emerged in the 60s. People were called victims. This was a silent and stigmatized population that had to find its voice in other ways. Um, there was really no public discourse around victimhood, around this cultural representation of the Holocaust. In fact, it was actually during the war in the 40s, and as somebody who presents the Seattle Jewish Film Festival, there were a number of films, including many of you have seen Charlie Chaplin's, of course, The, the Great Dictator, uh, 1940. There are other films in the UK that also represented uh, people from survivors or victims of the, of the concentration camps. But it was actually a film in 1945 in the Soviet Union that was the first to show any kind of mass murder. Um, so it's interesting when we think about the rewriting of the Holocaust because it is now pervasive in its representation in a lot of ways. Um, it has become mainstream in education. Uh, there are Broadway plays, The Diary of Anne Frank. You can name so many different avenues um, in which we see it. Also survivors, as Dean will attest to, are sought after speakers and in, for many of us, cultural heroes in our communities. Um, there's a double-edged sword to the Holocaust and representation. And on the one hand, this remarkable shift from silence to salience, which is what has gone on in our community, marks the need for memorialization. You mentioned Zahor, um, that has its own history of historiography, which I think we, did, we don't want to get into right now, but this notion of international remembrance in an attempt to document through film, through other mediums, the evidence into a coherent narrative has been a, a major event that has happened in our, in our world. 
Um, art also plays a real key role in this, and I would say both the low arts and the high arts, perhaps ballet included in the capital A for the art there, um, is that there, it has become sort of an energetic evangelist of the Holocaust narrative and witnessing in our audiences and in our community. But the devilish sword, on the other hand, is that the enormity of this tragedy is just so much misery and horror has been so encompassing for Jewish identity in particular that we have started to count our own history as happening starting in 1948, 75 years ago, and not 5,783 years ago. And so a lot in the Jewish community, there's been a bit of what we call Holocaust fatigue, um, which is a certain public indifference to seeing these narratives represented. Also, I think, you know, art being naturally an interpretive art, as you mentioned, whether it's more inchoate by dance or very, very distributed and as a documentary film, it, there's interpretation, there's fabrication. Um, that coherence in the big glossy, glossy budgets of Hollywood creates sympathetic audiences, but it also leaves Jewish history open to public criticism, suspicion, and even denial once you start interpreting the Holocaust. So I have a lot more to say, but I wanted to just end it on the following. Um, you know, when Schindler's List came out, for example, even the debates about criticism were vast. You know, Frank Rich, all the great uh, Janet Maslin were arguing, can we actually criticize this film? It is beyond criticism. And I think one of the things that I would like to say about, you know, both Ava's beautiful piece is that our job actually is to put on our critical thinking hats. That the Holocaust has so many representations. Um, and I think that our job is to actually look at the different approaches to it and the many keep producing them, keep putting them out there. But I think Dee's job, especially, and I'll pass it over, I think, to Dee in a moment, is that the digitization of the evidence, the oral histories, the primary evidence, those are so incredibly critical when you have what's called a Holocaust industry in popular culture. Dee, I'm gonna go right to you. So, and you, maybe you can lead into my next question, which is how do we teach our children about this in the future when people don't always wanna hear about it? Great, I'll address the first question, which is about art. Um, how does art um, express itself without minimizing the Holocaust? And I think that there's two, two areas where you know, we at the Holocaust Center, Holocaust educators, are particularly concerned about, and one is context. So art is an expression of something witnessed or something learned. And unless that something witnessed or something learned has context for the audience, then it falls short of really delivering the kind of message that a Holocaust production needs to have. And I thought we did an excellent job today of providing context. Um, we've seen people, you mentioned the Anne Frank play, students who go to the Anne Frank play and they ask questions, why was she in hiding, right? Because they had no context. So in order not to minimize the Holocaust, I think any art piece should be accompanied by, or context has to be a part, integral part of the art. Um, the other thing that I think is uh, critical is, you know, with all the survivors I've met, and, and so many of them painfully telling their stories over and over again, um, they did it with the idea that it would make a difference, that their story and their experience needed to make a difference. And so the other part of art as an expression of the Holocaust is really to, to 
make it relevant to today. Elie Wiesel wrote, um, there may be times when we feel powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. And so I think art is an expression, it's a protest, it has to have a message that says, how can we make the world a better place now that we know this, right? So those are the two elements I think that would um, sort of prevent someone from creating an art piece that isn't minimizing the, the Holocaust. Next question. That's great. Yeah, if you want to shift into that, and, and maybe that will naturally transition to Beverly's work, is how do we, how do we make this accessible? So storytelling, again, I think Pamela talks about testimony. Testimony is critical to our storytelling. And um, I think I'm just going to, why talk about storytelling without telling a story, right? So I think I'm going to just tell you a small, short story that is just packed full of, of lessons and knowledge and wisdom. So it's the story of Klaus Stern, who was in, in our museum. He was a speaker here in Washington and for our center. Uh, he spent 28 months in Auschwitz. Um, during his time there, he was a slave laborer, he was beaten, it was the most horrific experience. He was dehumanized, basically, over that 28-month period. When a student asked him, much, many years later, about 50 years later, a student asked him what was the most painful experience he had. And Klaus said it was the day, when he was 13, it was the day that his best friend Walter would no longer play with him because he was Jewish. Right? So here in that little story, what do you hear? You hear discrimination, you hear pain. The people, the strangers who, who tortured him were not nearly as critical as the people he thought were his friends turning their backs on him. So in that little story, there's so many lessons, so much to learn, so many lessons for young kids about how to speak out for someone else, how to stand up. So I think storytelling is um, an art. It's something that through the ages, if we think of the Torah, storytelling, if we think of Grimm's fairy tales, what did they do? They scared children so they wouldn't be with strangers, right? Don't walk with the stranger, the Grimm's fairy tales. You know? So storytelling is a way that we've communicated lessons for, for centuries. And um, the Holocaust is no different. And I think we are lucky, very lucky, that Holocaust survivors chose to tell their stories. Um, they, they did, it was not easy for them. They did it at, many of them did it at a time when they were told not to. And uh, they continued to tell their stories, to write books, to create plays, to, to paint, to, to sing. They continued to tell their stories so that they could make the world a better place. That's very moving, Dee. Thank you. Oh, that story. Um, taking that a little bit more on a storytelling level, I'm going to go to Beverly, who does that very act of courage that Dee's talking about. And maybe you could just tell everybody a little bit more about how you bring your story forward um, in a way that, that you feel like can move children and help them understand. Thanks. So when I think about why I tell my parents' story, well, you know, certainly I want to honor their memory, their um, perseverance, their resilience, and their courage. But I also uh, believe in the power of personal stories to... Um, Is that on? I'm not on. I believe in the power of personal stories to, um, to inform, to educate, and to inspire people. 
So my hope is that by learning my family story, uh, students, and these are primarily middle school and high school students who are accessing the resources of the Holocaust Center, my hope is that they can learn something about the dangers of anti-Semitism and racism, and they can learn it in a, in a meaningful and a lasting way. And then when I consider the role of the arts, um, in, uh, looking at and including dance, of course, um, in that process, I think that the, the arts can really enhance that learning experience. So after students learn my story, if there's an opportunity for them to, to reflect and to respond through creative um, expression, I think that it's just a, a wonderful way to personalize that learning and to make it really powerful. And the, the other thing that I, just, I wanted to mention, just um, that whole aspect of uh, introducing something so painful to kids, you know, how, how, does, how do we make that work? So at least relating to, to my family story, I think amidst the darkness, the horror, you know, the tragedy, of course, of a Holocaust story, if in any way you can share um, some hope that there's just some, a glimmer of light in all that darkness, I think that really makes it more manageable for kids to, uh, to handle the reality of the Holocaust. And, so my, my parents' story includes my mother's experience in the kinder transport. And you'll hear her say directly that she certainly witnessed and experienced um, the worst of people, you know, through uh, not in living in Nazi Germany. But she also talks about uh, seeing the best in people in these, um, in these generous and loving uh, British people. There was a, a Jewish community in Middlesbrough, England, and there were 130 families who served, they rescued my mother and 24 other girls by serving as their sponsors in the, in the kinder transport program. So um, again, just like um, Rabbi Klein had mentioned, uh, the idea of um, sorrow and joy in inhabiting that same space. Thank you, Beverly. Okay, Rabbi Wiener, going over to you now. Um, There's very little left to say. Oh, I, no. Spoken. No. Well, I think, um, especially because you do so much education with kids, including my own kids, no pressure. Um, if you can talk a little bit sort of along these themes, but also if you can take it out a little broader to how you could see PNB doing more for the community in this way. Um, that would be great. I mean, you've incorporated rock music into Jewish education. I'm sure you have a brilliant plan for dance, too. For dance, too. Now, listen, it's, it's um, wonderful on so many levels that uh, PNB is doing this kind of outreach, but particularly to the Jewish community. And, and talk about uh, jumping in the deep end of, uh, of, of elements of, of Jewish culture to, to, to present something around the Holocaust on the weekend of International Holocaust Remembrance Days is really a, um, in some ways a risk, but I think a, a risk with, with great reward. Um, I have very little to add to the esteemed comments of this, of this uh, the, the comments of this esteemed panel. Um, other than to say one of the most powerful ways I think uh, the uh, Holocaust can be represented, um, in some ways counter to what uh, Adorno is often misinterpreted as saying, uh, in terms of it's barbaric to, to write poetry or to craft art by extension after the Holocaust, is the power of allegory. 
whether it's Jonathan, Jonathan Swift or George Orwell or Art Spiegelman, if you remember Art Spiegelman wrote Mouse. And someone confronted Spiegelman and said, is it appropriate for you to do this in this way? And his answer was, well, Auschwitz wasn't appropriate. <laughs> uh, that, that if there is a way to, through metaphor, and, and again, I'm uh, a big fan of Joseph Campbell, who talks about the ways in which art and metaphor, poetry, the visual arts, dance, conveys things that are not only ineffable, but, but seem to be uh, uh, indescribable, seem to be impossible to put into any other form, um, uh, any kind of representative form. And, and the fact that metaphor in art in some ways captures uh, a more truthful and authentic representation of, of an event or, or a period itself to me is incredibly powerful. And for me, um, provide, I mean, just from rabbinic tradition, but, but particularly in terms of recounting something as historically difficult and painful as the Holocaust, to provide, to, to do so in metaphor, and particularly Mouse, I always thought was just an incredible representation of, uh, of a Holocaust story in a form that not only young people, but also people who, who, who can't uh, encounter it in other ways um, could, could find some kind of access to it, I thought was, was incredibly powerful. And the other thing I want to mention is, oftentimes we take our 12th graders to, uh, as a carrot to keep them through uh, our religion school program, but, but also uh, we, we take them to Europe uh, to see Jewish things and Jewish events, but also you know, non-Jewish elements of Central Europe and Spain and Italy or what have you. Um, we do so for a couple reasons. One is, and this really reminded me of elements of, of the dance, is um, to somehow write off all of European Jewry and to identify them only as victims for those 12 years of the Holocaust does a disservice to the 2,000 years of history that came before. Jews have been in Europe since uh, Roman times, and some would say even before. And so to somehow associate uh, European Jewry only with that period, I think does a gross disservice to the, the incredible, it's not always good times, but the incredible cultural affluence that took place in that 2,000 year period. And that's something that I really want to show our 12th graders, so many of whom, all of whose parents and grandparents or what have you, are descended from European immigrants. Um, but to recapture those elements of joy, to recapture those elements of the vitality of life that oftentimes is obscured when you only look at it through the lens of the Holocaust, I think is really critically important. But one of the most powerful experiences for me was going to Theresienstadt. Uh, granted, it is a rarefied kind of scenario, but the responsiveness of those who, with a little sliver of latitude, were able to, to, to engage in this incredible blossoming of art, even in that camp, even in that experience. The, they, they were putting on shows, they, to the extent that they were able, they were putting on musical shows, they were putting on dance. Incredible songs were, were conceived and, and, uh, and, and visual arts were, were crafted. And some of it was a representation of what they were experiencing to ensure that it was documented, but so much of it was just a saying yes to life in the face of everything that was seeking to vanquish them. They're just beautiful, it was as, as if they were saying, we are still alive here, we are suffering unimaginable indignities and, and inhumanities that, that were un, are unprecedented. But we still are saying that, that life has meaning and purpose even here, even in the shadow there's a crack of life. 
And if you've gotten a chance to go to Theresienstadt and to see the museum where some of these artistic renderings are housed, it really is one of the most uh, beautiful, palpable, and intensive representations of the resilience of the human spirit that ha have ever been documented. Thank you, Rabbi Wiener. Um, I think I am going to take it back to Eva because one of the things that really came forward to me with this panel is what really connects us is our individual stories. When we think about the bigger, wider stories, it becomes overwhelming. Um, and I think Dee demonstrated that really well, <laughs> that one person's story can change the world. And I think that was sort of where Eva began with this. She wanted to tell one person's story. And um, I thought maybe just to finish, she could talk a little bit about what that meant to you and maybe what it means to you today to see all these people who are moved by this, this one very special story and just how proud I am of you because just like Rabbi Wiener was saying that it really takes a lot of courage to say I believe in life and I believe in all of these good things in the world, I, the act of creating a dance is absolutely that. So do you want to say anything to finish? <laughs> you know, um, uh, when I learned the story of my cousin and of course, have to make art around it. I have to. I cannot not do that. Um, and uh, having just an opportunity to be in a studio with dancers in time to create is the greatest gift of all. We don't get that opportunity very often. Um, and uh, having no expectations of where we go other than just in front of an unknown audience and, and people enjoying it. But now, um, connected me to all of you incredible people and you're all here and um, Jacqueline's story is a little more well known now and uh, my, the relationship with the dancers, they, they now know the story intimately and can carry it with them forward um, and then me getting to watch them embrace this, it's just, it just it just blossoms and uh, I'm so grateful for P&D for everyone to come here on this beautiful Sunday afternoon to talk about such and, and, and witness the beautiful work of the dancers, and, uh, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just getting started here. Uh, I feel 14 again, like this, there's an awakening now, and uh, something has happened here, a little switch has gone on. I'm very excited to continue on this journey, so thank you all so much. Thank you. Um, I think we'll open it up to questions now, if anyone has questions for the panel, don't be shy. Mindy! <laughs> Speak loudly, okay? My question is for Ava. Have you had a chance to take this performance internationally and specifically to Germany? Um, that would need some fabulous funding. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else any of the panelists want to ask or add? Well, I just wanted to extend a personal invitation to bring it to the Strong Church Community Center and build more education and in 
love to approach a foundation that I know about to see if we can do something else with it. Um, I know some in the room know the foundation, so I won't mention it, because <laughs> who knows, um, that they do support arts and, and storytelling. Um, that's all I wanted to say, is put it out there, lay it out there, um, bring it out to the community, um, and give other people an opportunity locally to feel proud of what you've produced. Thank you, Pamela. Um, if nobody else has any questions, I just wanted to add at the end that this is supposed to be released as a podcast as part of PNB is Listening series. If you're not aware of that series, um, it has been a really unique effort by our IDEA committee to really open our ears and minds to the community around us. Um, and I mean, gosh, we made this event happen. I think there, are, there is a lot of potential of ways to bring forward stories and make dance really a part of our culture in a way that we almost lost it during the pandemic. So if you have thoughts and ideas about that, I just want to encourage you not to be shy, even if maybe you don't want to speak up right now, um, that PMB is listening. And um, we really welcome the community into this environment. And we want you to come in and feel like there's a place for you here. So um, with that, I just want to say thank you so much to this panel and the organizations, but also these individuals who I know really brought their full selves here today. Um, I also want to extend my deepest gratitude to Naomi Glass and Kian Ross, who just I, have, have just shown incredible leadership in bringing ballet forward in this way, that we're, we're ready to open our minds and see just how we can, we can also change the world and make it a better place. Because you know art may not have a lot of power outside of that, but healing the human spirit is something that we take a lot of joy and pride in and that we want to do. So, yeah, Pamela's got one more thing for us. Since it's going to be in a podcast, I will put in a shameless plug um, that the Seattle Jewish Film Festival is coming up. It is taking place March um, 11 through 26, and there are probably five films of prismatic storytelling around the subjects that we're dealing with today, various interpretations of narratives of family history, Holocaust, and storytelling. There's a total of 23 films in the festival. Um, but I just wanted to say it's uh, seattlejff.org, and I hope that everyone will continue their journey and these conversations. Um, cinema has become one of the largest and most massive ways that people are learning about the Holocaust. Um, and I do think that it doesn't necessarily dilute it if we continue the conversation. That's wonderful, thank you. Okay, everybody, thank you for coming, and the wonderful Dean Felder's delicatessen has some wonderful treats for you, and Kibitzing, so thank you so much.